0: hi vicky hi shane what's the coolest thing you've ever won I, talking material oh. object as a door prize a raffle something like that
1: like a contest yeah sure you know i win a. I feel like i win a lot of stuff
0: <laughs> all you do but is win 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 no matter what
1: <laughs> yeah um But I don't feel like, I can't think of anything. Like, I don't think anything's ever been the coolest. I won a Kindle once.
0: Oh, that's neat.
1: That was neat. But I already had a Kindle. So um, I won it and like went up to get it. And by the time I like came back to like my group of people, uh, my husband had already given it away. (laughs) You
0: just you told me this story yeah he's
1: like <laughs> that's you already she already has one she doesn't need that who wants
0: that i mean that's that's very rude. that's just very kind of him he's just you're always winning and he's always giving you know that's yeah i guess we make a good pair, <laughs> a
1: good pair. it's pretty rude actually kind in one way rude in another way he just, that's just, okay. he just
0: didn't ask you
1: <laughs> yeah he doesn't like when i tell rude stories about him
0: <laughs> well, on the
1: podcast <laughs>
0: Sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think um, what's funny is when I think about I, I'm not like that. I don't what? really know. I can probably I can count on one hand on very few fingers how many times I've won <laughs> a thing. Uh, but I actually think at the in the same type of event where you got your Kindle, mm-hmm. I recently uh, in a raffle won a telescope. Um
1: yeah and I
0: was I was complaining at this event uh that there's been going on for many years and I never won anything and that's not how drawings work I understand how probabilities it's work random. yeah um, it's it's got to be my year. and so I just given up and <laughs> it was I was literally it's just so funny because I I wasn't even expecting anything. Like, of course, you don't expect something like that. And mm-hmm. I was walking back to my table, and it was one of the last ones of the night. And I'm like, okay. And so, pull the ticket out, and I read through it, yeah. and then the, it was the numbers. And mm-hmm. I I don't know. I I mouthed something to myself, probably something vulgar, if I'm being honest. <laughs> like, <laughs> wait what and I read it again and I think what? I literally just like held my ticket up in the air I was like that's me
1: <laughs> <laughs> the raffle gods heard you the
0: raffle that's gods it. heard me yeah uh, so yeah now I um I have a telescope that my partner did not give away
1: uh, oh well that's nice that's
0: yeah that is very nice of her so uh, one for her zero for your husband
1: yeah yeah <laughs>
0: Science is fascinating, but don't just take my word for it. Join us as we hear stories from scientists for everyone. I'm Shane Hanlon.
1: And I'm Vicki Thompson.
0: And this is Third Pod from the Sun. All right. So pretty pretty straightforward today. We're talking telescopes, uh, b- more than that, but specifically someone who's worked on and is working on uh telescopes for NASA that are that are a little bit bigger in well <laughs> scope,
2: I guess. <laughs>
0: oh like <laughs> you're like reading ahead to the silly things <laughs> of writing in this script. Uh but yes, bigger in scope and bigger full stop than my small, but honestly very exciting telescope Uh, my my very exciting raffle prize do do y'all have a telescope have you ever owned a telescope um
1: so i don't have a telescope i've asked my my parents have a telescope but it kind of just lives like in the corner of the guest room it doesn't i don't feel like we use it very much
0: does the guest room have a window well, yes, there is well, that. So I, that's helpful. I ask that because I have not used mine yet. It's literally okay. sitting right beside me in my basement oh. studio uh, because I just haven't figured out where it's going to live yet. Um, I have an idea, but it just hasn't made it there. So yes, it is It is together, uh, but it is sitting right beside me. Uh, but maybe, maybe this episode, maybe this interview will be my motivation to start getting some use out of it.
1: Oh, that'll be nice.
0: Yeah, yeah. So so let's get into it. Our interviewer was
2: Jason Rodriguez. I am Hashima Hassan. I work at NASA headquarters as a program scientist for a number of astrophysics missions. I'm the Deputy Program Scientist for the James Webb Space Telescope and the Program Scientist for the XP and New Star Telescopes, as well as a partnership with Keck Observatory. I'm also Executive Secretary of the Astrophysics Subcommittee, and I'm the Education and Outreach Lead for Astrophysics. Each role, as you can imagine, is a little different. So for a program scientist, uh, what we say is we take a mission really from cradle to grave. So at the time that it's conceived, uh, we are really responsible for for what the science uh, objectives of the mission will be. So we work with the scientific community to define the science questions. And then once the mission becomes real, we have to write solicitations for the science instruments, which will go on onto the missions, or if it's a competed mission like XP or New Star, what we call explorers, then we write the solicitation for the explorer program and select missions for that. And then uh, we have to, once it's operational, we have to get the best science out of it. So, So that's the program scientist duty. As executive secretary of the the Astrophysics Advisory Committee, that's a way that the federal government gets advice from the public is through committees which are formed under the Federal Advisory Committee Act, which are called FACA committees. So I have to set up the agendas and the meetings and all that good stuff and, and get advice from the community and then of course education and outreach i think that's self-explanatory we have education programs in astrophysics as well and then outreach is so generally to go out and speak about our science programs to schools to public and so on no two days look alike i may imagine i'm going to do x y and z today but it may just turn out to be different so
0: what you know what drew you to, to science to begin with
2: Well, with science, actually, I would say right from my childhood, I was just fascinated with how nature worked. And I actually, I was born in India and I was raised there. And and this was very soon after India got independence from the British. So the country is very underdeveloped and there was practically no electricity, and the skies used to be dark and clear, and at night I used to just stare at them, and my mother would tell me stories about the stars and the moon, and then in the monsoon, you know, like everything came to life. There were lots of little new creatures. I still remember there was a little uh, red bug which looked like velvet, and it used to move across, and I think they've got extinct. Then there'd be fireflies at night, and there'd be all kinds of new plants coming out butterflies i mean it was just used to be so fascinating and as i grew older in school i got a little more we were actually taught formal science in school and i would take flowers and dissect them and see what they were made of we used to collect pupas see them turn into butterflies and then when uh space race first started when sputnik was launched i was i think 5 or 6 years old and my grandmother took all of us into the backyard to see sputnik go across the night's actually early morning sky i still remember that i was just so fascinated with that and then the first man in space yuri gagarin visited my city lucknow and my mother took all of us to meet him at at a vip reception and, and so and then we really followed the space race very excitedly. Every morning. we'd look in the newspapers, what's happened today? And then the first woman space, Valentina Tereshkova, visited uh, New Delhi, uh, my mother took us to visit her. So my mother was really very much behind this, you know, encouraging this interest in science. So and when man landed on the moon, it was I just was so fast that gosh, wouldn't it be exciting to work at NASA. And I had some role models in the sense that I knew that an uncle was a scientist, but I didn't actually meet him so much. And in school, we used to read about Marie Curie. So I used to be very fascinated about Marie Curie, and I read everything I could about her. And I felt that, you know, she can do science, surely I can do though there weren't too many women there, you know, I think generally in science, and leave alone in India, we had just got independence and political leaders and our family, they were very much that you are the new generation, you will build this country and to build the country, you have to be scientists. And at that time, in my innocence of childhood, I didn't think that I'm a girl, I won't be able to do science. And, and we were told that uh, everyone has equal rights, so I would have same rights as my brothers. And that was very empowering. I wanted to do science in school. At that time they didn't, uh, it was a girls' school. It was run by uh, Roman Catholic Irish nuns. They, at the time that I joined the school, the nuns didn't believe in teaching science to the girls except botany and home science. But I was lucky that when I reached the ninth grade, we had a, a new headmistress, and this uh, nun had just come back from America, and she had this revolutionary idea that girls can do science. So she introduced science in school. And so a small group of us who, you know, we said we were interested. So. We were tested and we were allowed to do science. And the real challenge was to find women teachers to teach science. So, you know, we used to have a sort of string of one came and another left and so but somehow or another we did uh finished our school leaving exam, which in those days was conducted by the University of Cambridge in England. Then I went to the university in Lucknow, and that was the first time I went into a co-educational environment. And I had to go to the university because there were no women's colleges at that time in Lucknow which taught mathematics in college in the medium of English. There was one in Hindi medium, but not in English medium. So I went to uh, Lucknow University. They recognized that there weren't too many uh, young women doing science. And so to encourage us, I would say, they actually had set aside a, a, a a sort of a common room in the mathematics department which was called the girls' room. So in between classes, all of us would just go and sit in the girls' room because we didn't want to mix with, with the boys. we were just it was just not in our culture. But that enabled us to, to at least study science. and in our classroom they would make us all the girls used to make make to sit in the first row so the boys wouldn't harass us. So I finished my bachelor's, and then typically that was about the time when girls were supposed to get married. But my, I was fortunate, again, that my parents gave me freedom. They said, if you want to get married, we'll find a husband for you. Otherwise, I said, no, I want to go and do master's. So I went to Aligarh University, where my cousin had just done physics, and she thought I should go there. So I did my master's there. One day I picked up courage to apply to the University of Oxford got admission there. So it took me about a year to get a scholarship. Went to Oxford, completed my PhD. I came back to India. I did a postdoc at Tata Institute of Fundamental Research in Bombay. Then I thought I'd got my dream job in the faculty of University of Pune. But by that time, my family said, okay, enough. You've got to get married now. So so they found me a husband and I was packed off to the US because he was in North Carolina at that time. And so here I was, suddenly in the tobacco fields and forests of North Carolina, nineteen seventy nine, that's what it was, I I can tell you, in Raleigh. But there were fortunately there were three good universities in the area, so I visited all of them. I said, "Here I am. I want to do my research. Just finished my, uh, you know, it had been like three three years since my PhD in Oxford." So, you know, I I learned later that uh, this this is a very typical American thing when there's something new, you give it out free. So I said, "I'm here to work for free because." Uh, on my visa, I can't accept money from you. So all three of me, they were quite happy to get a free Oxford PhD. They said, sure. So I started doing uh, postdoctoral research at Duke University in nuclear physics. By that time, uh, visa status changed, and I was able to get fellowship at, uh, it was a National Research Council fellowship at the US EPA to study air pollution in Denver, Colorado. Because in those days, a big brown cloud used to set, settle over Denver. Uh, so they wanted to, me to understand what which pollutants caused visibility de- degradation there. So I did that. Then in the meantime, I gave birth to a baby. And that's another story. And I can tell you sometime about that one, about trying to get better leave for that. Then we went back to India, again, for visa reasons. We went back for a couple of years had another baby there, and then came back and found myself in Baltimore. So I started looking around in Baltimore. By that time, they were kind of winding up the nuclear physics in in the physics department, but they had a physics and astronomy, and they said, you know, we have this new institute, Space Telescope Science Institute. You want to see if you can do something there. So I went there and they said, we are looking for someone who knows optics uh, uh, to write the simulation software for the Hubble Space Telescope and its science instruments. This was 1989. No, 85, 1985. So I said, yeah, sure, I'll write it. You know, I thought, well, I can do nuclear (laughs) the arrogance of a nuclear physicist. I said, I can do that. Surely I can write the the software for for this, whatever this Hubble is. (laughs) So I joined the institute. I wrote the software, and when Hubble was launched, it turned out that that software was instrumental in analyzing, because when, you know we saw the images were aberrated. I mean, a lo- lot of kids your age don't even know that a Hubble has an aberrated mirror, but it does. It's not perfect. And so uh, my job became to analyze those images and to keep the Hubble in what they call best focus. I was made the telescope scientist. And so, so, so I worked on Hubble till we did the first servicing mission, and after that, I just thought I want to do something different. One thing was that, you know, the science atmosphere for women was a little hard at Space Telescope at that time, and uh, so I, I just wanted to go somewhere else. And this opportunity came up at NASA headquarters, so I joined it in 1994 as a visiting senior scientist, and then. F- few years later, they hired me as a civil servant. So there you go.
1: <laughs> wow, wow, that's such a journey Wow, that's such an incredible journey
0: I know i was so I was listening in on these two uh, i was I was running sound and tech for this interview mm. uh, when Jason was conducting it. and I, I mean, I, I listen in, obviously, but mostly it's for I'm kind of usually zoned out and listening from a technical perspective to make sure the audio sounds good. But I do remember, I think I looked up from what I was doing, and I was just so enraptured by everything that she did to get where she is today.
1: Yeah. And I imagine that even beyond what she shared, there were probably times when things didn't go quite as planned.
2: When I wrote the optical software for Hubble Space Telescope, the idea was that, you know, we'd be, I write the software, Hubble will launch, we'll have these beautiful images and we'll be analyzing them and and that's how I'll be doing and life will be good. But when Hubble launched, it was not what I had expected. And really life took a different turn after that. So... I wouldn't say that it failed, but it certainly caused a very big turn in, in my uh, plans. So, rather than you know analyzing Hubble images and doing science, here I was trying to fix Hubble. <laughs> when the images from Hubble came down, they were blurred. They were not the clear images you are seeing. And so we said, why are they blurred? So we started analyzing them and looking at the optics, and we realized that there's something wrong with the mirror. The edges of the mirror have been shaven off like like a hair's breadth more than they should have. So the rays which were coming from the edges of the mirror converged at a different point from the rays that came from the rest of the mirror. So instead of you getting a point, you were getting one point here, one point there, and the image was kind of a blurry thing in between. And so so that was the problem. And then when, you know, NASA started doing its investigation, went back to the company which had made the mirror and looked at everything. It turned out it was really a very bizarre error. What had happened was when they were shaving the mirror, they used to test it with, with an instrument which was like a little telescope. And it was, and the mirror in that instrument was surround had a little kind of a black paint uh, on the tube, so it, it would be protected. Turned out that the, a little chip from the paint had come off, which is just near the mirror. So instead of the light reflecting off the mirror, it reflected off that little chip. And so there was just little that little hair's breadth of a difference was made. So when they were, were measuring the mirror as they were grinding it, they ground it a little bit too much. Wow. wow. And And actually, NASA had sanctioned two mirrors. The other one was made at Kodak, and that mirror was perfect, and it's sitting in the Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. You can go and see the perfect mirror there.
0: Vicky, we live in the D.C. area. Uh, Have you been to Air and Space? Have you seen this mirror?
1: So I've been to Air and Space, but I can't tell you whether I've seen the mirror or not. Last time (laughs) I went, maybe the only time I went, I was chasing a two-year-old around. So I don't think I actually saw anything except for her.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I've been to, uh, I think... I was gonna say a common misconception i have no idea what other people huh. think but i do think huh. a misconception for folks who don't live in our area who know that we have all these museums is that we all go constantly and i'm sure some of us do oh. but i think a lot of us don't just right for no reason that's an amazing resource uh i've been to air and space a handful of times i've been to right. we, there's two there's one downtown in dc then there's one out oh. in virginia that has yes. one of the space shuttles and an sr-71 and some bigger stuff um both very cool and i'm i'm sure i have seen this mirror uh but yeah i can't i can't off the top of my head recollect it um right but also i think the downtown one just had a big renovation and i have been wanting to go back so oh. i will i will pay uh special attention next time um but but as you might imagine, so mirrors or otherwise, uh, Hashima has had a lot to be proud of. So we just asked her about it.
2: One that always comes to my mind is, uh, you know, when uh, JWST, when, when we started off, it was called NGST, Next Generation Space Telescope. I was the program scientist for NGST at that time. This was around... Between '99 to around 2001, we had these very intense uh, negotiations with the European Space Agency on one of the instruments called the Mid-Infrared Instruments, where the Europeans were going to build half of it and the Americans were going to be, NASA was going to be the other part. And then once we'd had those negotiations, had been decided what NASA would do, I was told by my management you have to find out find which nasa center will manage this instrument so i had to write to the directors of the uh, three nasa centers which had the right uh, capabilities goddard ames and jpl and invite uh, uh, proposals from them and we were reviewing those proposals on 911 september 11 2001 and It was, I think, around 10 a.m. when the building uh, manager came, and he said, you know, the building in which we were holding the review, it was in D.C., but it wasn't headquarters. It was close to it. And he said, I have to interrupt you, because, uh, you know, at that time, there were just rumors. He said, you know, this plane has hit, and there's fire in the White House. You know, I think that, the, that that plane which had fallen the Pentagon, people could see the fire. They couldn't really tell where it was. Some thought it came from the White House and they said the metro has been closed and everything has been closed and so my boss, she sort of suspended the meeting to so that because we had people who had come from California to make a presentation. She said, Go get your hotel reservations back because you can't fly back. The airports are closed. So they did that. And then she said, and she called headquarters and she said, people, she said, you know, there's complete chaos in the streets. Nobody can go anywhere. So let's just continue the uh, review. So there I was, you know, responsible for the review. We continued the review. And in between, in the intervals, I was trying to call my husband. I was trying to call my children and not getting any response and uh, but we, we completed the review. So I felt really proud about that. And so whenever I see the images coming from the mid-infrared instrument and the signs coming from that, I think of that day. and I feel really proud of the role that I pr- played in that instrument. Yeah, working under that sort of you know intense pressure and under those circumstances. And then when I went out after, after the review, it was 2 p.m. They had just opened the Metro. It was really surreal because it was really a beautiful day. It was a beautiful autumn day. The sky was blue. The weather was just perfect. And there wasn't a soul on the streets in D.C. except police and barriers. And I'd never seen DC like that. I went into the metro. I was standing alone on the platform. It was so scary. And I thought, first train that comes, I'm going to jump on. I don't care where it's going. So first train came, Silver Spring. I just jumped on it, got off at Silver Spring. And by that time, I was able to contact my husband when I got got out at Silver Spring. And he said, in those days, you couldn't phone underground. The signals wouldn't go out. So I could only phone once I got out at Silver Spring. And so he said, yes, I've reached home. You can come and I'll come and fetch you.
0: Do you remember where you were on 9-11?
1: I do. I was in college. Um, I was in like an early, early morning class, so when I came out of the class, it was like the campus was completely silent, um, which was very strange. It was like, oh, did a you not know film.
0: until you came out of class? No, oh, no, no, no. Okay. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And my, um, like, my advisor grabbed me because my mom, you know, works in New York City, mm-hmm. so um, my advisor grabbed me to try to like to pulled me into his office to try to get a hold of my mom which I couldn't. Um everything's fine, right? Mm-hmm. Um but uh couldn't get a hold of her so I like went back to my room and there was a little my roommate was sleeping, <laughs> right? And there was a post-it note on my desk that said in like sleepy penmanship, um you know, uh your mom called she doesn't know when she'll get to talk to you, but everything's fine. Wow. And and my roommate like took this message from my frantic mother and then went back to sleep. sleep. So she was from Syracuse and like didn't have like a lot of concept about like in her sleepy head about like what my mother was talking about or what was going on. So she went back to sleep. Yeah. So and then the rest of the day was like terrifying. Obviously, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um. But yeah, that's where I was.
0: Yeah, I um, I was in ninth grade Spanish class. Oh. uh in my rural pennsylvania school uh when everything started i remember them they literally they turned on the tvs like yeah right. the whole rest of the day i just remember going we went from classroom to classroom but didn't do anything we just watched tv for the rest of the day um, right. and i mean i i'm i was gonna say far away from where things happened and i don't have a personal kind of relationship to it that you do but i I'm from not very far from Shanksville, uh, uh-huh. where where one of them like one of the planes went down in the field. It's um, about probably less than an hour from where I grew up. So while I have this kind of geographic connection to it, uh, I don't have that kind of personal linkage. Like I don't have a parent who was in the mm-hmm. city, or even like Hashima. Like I wasn't in the D.C. area at that time. So so very happy to hear that things were good for you, Vicky, uh, mm-hmm. and and. Things were fine for Hashima as well, even though I'm sure this was a very uh, scary experience, Mm -hmm. frankly. And so she has seen and experienced, frankly, so much over her career. Uh, We were really wondering kind of what's next on the horizon for her.
2: As you may have guessed, my horizon is getting closer and closer to me. (laughs) It's it's not very far in the future. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, what, what time I have left to me, what I would really like to do is, yeah, one of these days I should retire. I don't know. Every time I think I'll do it next year, so uh, maybe. <laughs> and uh, But what I would like to do is really take science out to the public. So, within the last year, especially after the launch of Hubble, I, I mean, of JWST. I've been getting a lot of uh, requests from schools and other places to to give talks on JWST. I think that's something I would like to concentrate on, taking science to the public. We need to ensure that the, the misconceptions of science are removed. People should be able to make their own decisions, but, but they should really value uh, science and and look upon it as really an inquiry inquiry based activity and not something which is science fiction so they have to uh, distinguish between science and science fiction I think that educating the public is really the only way and uh, the earlier you start the better and as they say reach for the stars. <laughs>
0: Hearing these inspiring words from Hashima, I I couldn't help but think back to when we talked about your dreams of becoming a lawyer. Uh, And I'm sorry that didn't happen for you. And I I feel personally responsible for guiding you down the path of becoming a podcaster.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thanks to you, I'm well on my way to getting... Podcasting awards.
2: I'm sure they're
1: going to add a podcast category to like the EGOT thing we were talking about.
0: The funny you laugh. I wonder if someday there will be an audio something version. Like it wouldn't. I don't know. (laughs) Not what we're doing, obviously, but like long form (laughs) narrative stuff. You know what I mean.
1: is there not in, like, Grammys or in... Um,
0: so, yes. So, right now, it's uh, under Grammys. A lot of...
1: Uh, oh, it is? Many...
0: Yeah. I think... I want to say many, but I know some folks who have gotten EGOTs, which is weirdly becoming also a theme of this podcast. Well, I have no oh. idea how. Uh, some of them are for spoken word, whether that's for narration or for personal story, whatever oh. it is. So, okay, okay. So, it is under Grammy right now. But maybe they'll okay. pop it out to make a separate category. What would it be? Yeah. The... What... <laughs> Would it be? It'd be the um, Peugeot, P E G O T. Oh,
1: it'd be great! It'd be great.
0: I'm sure people We're would love that. Uh, <laughs> well, well, I think I think that's enough from us uh, talking about podcasting or otherwise. And I want to thank Hashima for sharing her amazing stories with us. And with that, that's all from Third Pod from the Sun.
1: Special thanks to Jason Rodriguez for conducting the interview and to NASA for sponsoring the series.
0: This episode was produced by Zoe Swiss and me with audio engineering from Colin Warren and artwork from Karen Romano-Young.
1: We'd love to hear your thoughts, so please rate and review us and you can find new episodes on your favorite podcasting app or at thirdpodfromthesun.com.
0: Thanks all, and we'll see you next week. Hi, Vicky hi Shane what's the coolest thing you've ever <laughs> <laughs> you're getting two today does this count <laughs> does me? does me writing does me writing one as o-n-e instead oh. of w-o-n <laughs> I knew what you meant I love. That I, mean, you were just I had to read the sentence like three times to <laughs> make it work. You're just like, wait until this idiot gets to this one and realizes he says, "What's the coolest thing you've ever owned?" Because
1: <laughs> first I said, "I th- first I thought you meant owned," like my brain was just like owned, like the oh, material sure. object. Yeah, and then I was like, "Door prize." Yeah. Anyway, okay, let's do it again.
0: Oh my gosh, doing doing well. Okay.